and welcome to Not Safe for Publication, a podcast about the lighter side of humanities research. I'm Georgia. I'm Jess. And with us today is Will Carroll from the University of Birmingham. Hello. So Will, do you want to tell us a bit about your research project? Yeah, sure. So essentially, I research small town America and narratives of small town America in American popular culture, looking at why it's such a dominant symbol and setting and creative muse, I guess, where it's a slightly problematic word. And so I essentially look at the interwar period where a a huge wealth of small town texts were coming out. A lot of artists across literature, photography and art were all looking at the small town as a place to tell stories and use as a narrative vocaliser. So essentially, I'm looking at that interwar period and, and looking at how small town narrative as a genre became codified in this period. And I'm kind of, I'm, I'm trying to tease out, I guess, a common syntax that exists across these forms and disciplines. Um, so things like an attention to oral culture, so gossip and storytelling, stories of immigration and migration, an attention to everyday ritual and routine and what they might be, and how these things manifest across different forms of media in a small town environment. And really the crux of it all is kind of hanging on the fact that I've split all of these texts into two distinct poles. So we have dominant small town narrative and counter small town narrative. And essentially dominant small town narrative is the kind of it's a wonderful life frank capra vision of america small towns as conservative idyllic these white homogenous spaces where they kind of resist modernity nothing bad ever happens and then the the counter small town narrative is the the people that are revolt revolting against that essentially um there is a literary movement that i look at called revolt from the village um where these writers are literally saying small town america is a place of provincialism and insularity and we need to get away from that um but yeah in in three words my research is is small town america you probably get everyone asking this but do you look at carson mccullers or is she later no she she, she's kind of i mean the heart is a lonely hunter i think was about 1940 i think so initially i i wrote about that and the ballad of the sad cafe which i think is nine i think that's 1955 and i really wanted to write about that but i had to kind of kill my darlings with that because my periodization was just getting so big um so there is a section on mccullers and hurston uh zora neale hurston i've had to kind of get rid of um but i love carson mccullers yeah so talking about your periodization Mm -hmm. and and how you came to choose it is there something particularly significant about the interwar period or is it just more of a sort of convenient way to periodize your work I think really it's where the birth of of the the canonical small town texts starts. So things like Main Street by Sinclair Lewis obviously won the Nobel Prize and he's he's a big figure in American literature. That's such an iconic small town text and that was written I think 19... 20 or 21 i should know the date but i don't i don't specifically look at that text but there's just a lot of texts that are coming out around that time like winesburg ohio is another one by sherwood anderson one of my favorite short story collections this really bleak portrait of small town life um so yeah it's it's a helpful periodization anyway to have picked a, a set time but there's just a lot going on with the small town during this period. Towards the tail end of the 19th century, you had like, up to that point, it was just this really Edenic vision of like the New England village. I mean, that was it. Um, and then you kind of have this revised vision of it in the start of the 20th century where people are saying maybe there's more provincialism and more kind of vice than virtue going on here. Um, and then by the Depression, so kind of... I guess I'm looking at interwar, depression, and then just up to the Second World War. 
there's this huge shift again in which they're trying to reclaim the small town as this like nostalgic haven and you have like our town coming out the play which is i think the most reportedly the most produced play in american history and that's like this really paradise vision of small town life in a new england village so yeah i guess it's it's undergoing so many changes at this point that it just kind of made sense to to pick that day yeah geographically is this sort of across the the whole of the united states or are you focusing Uh, you know you've mentioned new england a couple of times Mm -hmm. there are you sort of foraying into the south the midwest yeah, originally it was going to be a regional study. So I was going to have the New England village. I was going to have the southern town, the frontier town and the Midwestern town. And then I just started to realize that maybe what I'm interested in isn't so much regional difference, although that comes up a lot in the study that I am doing now. It was more narr- narratology was what I was interested in. You know, What would a small town narrative look like? How do I define that? And then how can we use that to co-opt other texts and things like that? But yeah, I mean... Sherwood Anderson, Sinclair Lewis, there, Midwest. Um, Carson McCullers, I mentioned, I, I do have some on her that I've kind of taken out at the moment, but she's obviously Southern, Southern Mill Towns, that kind of space. Willa Cather, Mary Austin are writing on the frontier, the prairie. Um, and then, you know, Thornton Wilder's Our Town, New England. So, yeah, I kind of try to cover as many different geographical small towns as I can, really, um, because it just crops up across America, which I guess is the point, really. I find it impressive that no one, I mean, is this kind of original scholarship that you're doing in terms of this trying to codify a a genre, I guess? Has someone done it before or is it fairly new? In terms of what small town narrative is, it's not been done before. There's been quite a few, I say quite a few, to me, it feels like there's quite a few. But I mean, in the grand scheme of like scholarship and this field, it's probably quite light. There's been a few cultural studies on the small town in American popular memory and culture, you know, what it means to to have a nation of so many small towns that's obviously so urban centric. But, you know, what do we do with all these small towns that form the bedrock of presidential campaigns, blah, blah. Um, so there are quite a few studies of that kind. But narratologically, no one's really stopped to think, well, why is the small town persisting kind of narr- narratorially, I guess? So I trying to find a niche for my own research and you know i'm indebted to a lot of these scholars but i guess what i wanted to do was kind of answer the question of small town america a little bit and narratology made sense to me in in that respect so you you come from a literature background is that right yeah i do um but my, my ma thesis was again like this thesis which looks at photography literature and art kind of three prongs um i didn't mention that at the beginning i probably should have um so yeah my, my ma right, did let's that. start all over again <laughs> my ma did that as well and i've always enjoyed synthesizing a lot of different disciplines and media together um and when you take something like small town america you realize it's everywhere you know i i'm kind of attracted to it because i grew up reading stephen king and watching spielberg films and stand by me and you know it was it was kind of ever present in a lot of media i consume so it made sense that a study should also do the same for me you've just answered the question i was about to ask which is how did you sort of come to to this as a a field of subject uh of study mm-hmm. um but yeah i mean something that's sort of caught my attention is that you're working with photography are there sort of particular um photographers that you're looking at and Oh, particular images? Yeah, so essentially the bulk of the photography, I'm looking at um, the FSA, so the Farm Security Administration. So this is essentially, um, for those listening who aren't familiar with it, 
it was a huge government project um, under FDR during the New Deal, where they basically just got a group of really respected photographers of their of their period and just sent them to the rural um, American towns and places that were really hit by the Depression. And essentially, they were archiving these spaces, but it was ultimately socialist propaganda in a way of saying, look at what's happening to our small towns. We need to reclaim them in some way. Um, and Roy Stryker, who kind of headed that up, he was very insistent on kind of capturing a certain feel and texture of small town life. So obviously, there's, there's, although it's documentary photography and it's meant to be an archive of just American everyday life, there is a narrative impulse behind it. So that's what kind of drew me there. Um, and one of those photographers in particular, Ben Shan, who was a mural painter by trade, um, did a lot of small town murals. He kind of picked up a camera and got involved with photography and ended up as part of the FSA. And his work is just, it's doing that little bit more than some of the other photographers, I think. There's a series he did in Ohio called The Other Side of the Tracks, where he's specifically privileging black American voices and identity in a town that's been really hit by poverty and kind of a lack of opportunity. Um, and, you know, the FSA's archive is a largely document of white American poverty. So I'm, I'm interested in why is, is Sean choosing to go against that? And there's a narrative impulse behind that as well. Um, I mean, even contemporary photographers I'm really interested in as well, that the small town is a huge part of their work. So Stephen Shaw, um, William Eggleston. I mean, it's not contemporary now, but I guess kind of post the period I'm looking at. And Dorothea Lang as well is another great photographer from the FSA who is also, mm. I mean, she's canonical, but she mm. was also trying to kind of forge her own path. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of different photographers I'm interested in, for sure. I was going to say, like, one of the most notable things about the FSA photography project was the number of women mm. that were employed as photographers and producing, obviously, Migrant Mother, that very uh, famous uh, image. But yeah, like, these very interesting visions of changing rural scene. That's uh, it's fascinating stuff. Yeah, the thing that's really interesting about Dorothea Lang in particular is that she was really insistent on speaking to the subjects before taking their photograph and striking up that relationship. Whereas people like Walker Evans, who, you know, celebrated photographers in their own right, had this kind of reputation as being really aloof and puritanical, they were described by some critics, and just very austere and weren't interested in forging any kind of relationship with these people. Um, they were just aestheticized, whereas Lang was actually taking those steps to make this a project that wasn't just archiving them that was reaching out to them in some way i've always been interested in that aspect as well so your your project is kind of huge in its scope right like sounds really overwhelming have you been able to go to america or has this, have this been all done from birmingham it has all been done from birmingham i mean this is probably going to sound crazy now but i have literally never been to america in my life oh my um, not just for research purposes um i've literally never been and i would i would say since undergrad every single essay i have written bar one or two has been on american lit american geography just just american centric so it's kind of a love affair that I'm living vicariously through just all the reading and, and Well you TV. can't you can't ever go there now. No, it I will, can't. It will ruin it will ruin That's everything. what everyone tells me, yeah. <laughs> like if I go to a small town, this kind of romanticized ideal that Frank Capra and It's a Wonderful Life have given me will surely be shot to hell. But um, Well, I know that might as well now get out of the way. You love Gilmore girls. I do. Um, as do I. And that is like small town. That's such a great small town show. I went to a town in Vermont, which I think like Gilmore Girls was like 
or not based off Fitbit. It was very, very mm-hmm. similar. And actually, it didn't let me down. Really? Um, so you might have the same positive experience and I do when you eventually get to go. I hope so. Small town America, I think, still probably persists in a lot of places. Mm. I mean, you look at like even shows like Stranger Things and, um, you know, Riverdale, like contemporary productions that are really popular mm. that are just purely small town. And obviously it's got a huge draw for so many people. And like, why is that? Is it for nostalgia reasons? And then obviously that's problematic because small town is small town America isn't this perfect world that we should return to. Um, you know, I think around the time I'm looking at Disney in particular said we need to return to America's innocent years. And to him, that was small towns that are waspish. Um, mm-hmm. They're conser- white conservative. So, yeah, I guess it's our relationship with small town America is problematic as well. Um, you know, not me personally being British and not having visited one or being from a small town, but, you know, the way they're portrayed and how I perceive them is obviously I need to reckon with that in some way. I don't know. Yeah. I feel like in recently there's been a, such a bad rep for small towns. Hmm. You're here or generally or in America or... In America. In America, yeah. Yeah, I guess um, you have kind of like controversial books that came out like Hillbilly Elegy, J.D. Vance's book, which is kind of explaining Trump's rise through a look at a white underclass in Appalachia and things like that, um, which kind of willfully ignores racism and that you know, the part that played in, in kind of the American administration. But yeah, I, I think... There's, there's a lot of crises happening with America's small towns in general. Um, there's a scholar that I'm quite indebted to called Robert Wuth now, and he's just written a book, or maybe a, a year ago or so now, called The Left Behind. I mean, that's looking at small towns that are dealing with opioid crises and mm. various kind of economic disasters and, you know, places in the Rust Belt, for example. So, yeah, I mean, it's definitely not the idyllic thing it used to be by any means. But then you have media like Stranger Things and Riverdale, which although they're kind of dealing with, you know, dark things, at the core, it is this idea of something's being romanticised. Mm. Um, so, like, it's still, it's kind of the undying setting, I guess, in American culture. It never goes away, and I think that's why I wanted to kind of find an origin site for that, mm. if I could, and just say, you know, here's why it's still happening. So we've touched on this a little bit with Jess's question about uh, where you conducted all your research from, but... You know, in the over the last year, we've asked our guests a lot, like, how has your research life been? How have you sort of coped with everything? How have you conducted your research? How have you stayed sane? I mean, I feel guilty in saying that my general week to week hasn't changed that much. I used to travel to campus probably two days a week, purely just to professionalize the process of doing a PhD rather than just sitting at home for, you know, five days. Like, I should go to campus two days and go to and sit in a library and work. So I haven't done that. But I mean, in general, the research I was doing is just, you know, largely book based. If I need to look at the FSA photography archive, it's all on the Library of Congress online. um, So I can just pull photographs off there. Um, So my research hasn't changed that much. And, you know, other than my attention span, just absolutely nosediving um, and, you know, any idea of productivity, as awful as that term is, kind of completely changing track. My actual process and day-to-day hasn't changed that much. In terms of staying sane, probably the thing I always do, which is just re-watch an American sitcom or two that I've seen a million times. Um, you know, I'm currently re-watching The Office Office for about the 10th time. Um, mm. I re-watch Frasier all the time. It's like, you know, part, it sounds stupid, but all of these like little bits of American media, I guess, are in their own 
quiet way kind of integral to mm. doing an american studies slash american lit yeah half research half entertainment exactly i mean when i was watching gilmore girls that's what <laughs> i was just thinking that i was like this is a small town i could you know i could write about this i um, me and my mum always have gilmore girls on loop i mean mm. i'm not at home at the moment but it's just like constantly i'm just it's on in the background all the time by the time i get to the end of series seven i just go back to series one because it's been like a year it's um, extreme comfort food i it's think so um, comforting. you know it's knowing the kind of the rhythms and the beats of those shows and if you've seen them a few times kind of knowing what comes next is really i guess soothing and a great way to stay sane when you've been staring at you know well, I say staring at a screen, just staring at a different screen, because, you know, ultimately we just switch from a desktop to a laptop or whatever. Um, but yeah, I guess staying sane, it's, I'm just trying to do what everyone's doing really and just keep going. There's been a lot of great kind of interaction on Twitter and Communities Forge there, um, which I've really appreciated. Um, I've met a lot of people through that and done various things and collaborations with them. Um, so yeah, I, I, I don't really have a, a great answer for that i think but i'm 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 still going and you know my spirit hasn't been completely broken so you know that's always a plus well twitter was something that i wanted to pick up on because something that i have admired about you from afar for a very long time is that while you do seem to be pretty you know a, a focused academic your commitment to shit posting is just uh... <laughs> i recently noticed you've unlocked your you've unlocked your tweets again i have unlocked yeah. my tweets does that, that mean because... the shit posts are going to end no that that means they're probably going to increase um i i got i unlocked my <laughs> my account because i had a um I had an application with the Smithsonian, which um, I can say I didn't get now. And it was like a five month wait. Um, And I mean, I I applied for this last year and didn't get it then. It's stupidly competitive. And I kind of resigned to the fact that I wasn't going to get it the second time around. But I was like, if I don't apply, I'll never know. Um, So, yeah, I was just like, I'm going to I'm going to block myself just in case they see some stupid tweet about, you know, Frasier or God knows what. But I I tweet a lot of crap. Um, But, yeah, it's just, you know, I think. There are probably future employees or colleagues or, well, I hope, on there right now seeing all of that shite and it doesn't reflect that well. But I think I've been on, I've been on that hellhole site for like 12 years now. I'm, I'm in too deep to come off. I really disagree that it doesn't reflect well. Like, I don't separate my professional uh, Twitter mm. identity from my personal one, as uh, you both probably know. Um, <laughs> always being very weird on main and then tweeting about, like, whatever research network... I'm talking about that week. I I think it's kind of important to be like a real person online and uh, not have a completely sort of falsified professional identity. As you say, like there's going to be lots of people seeing it who maybe might be consider employing you in the future, but there'll also be lots of people seeing it who might be, you know, your, your students when you're a teaching assistant and might be you know, interested in collaborating with you and having a sense of your personality, I think is not a, not a bad thing. Mm. No, I completely agree. Um, particularly in like not separate, separating who you are from like this professional version of yourself. Um, I mean, I have to be careful if, if I was in a full-time kind of teaching capacity like I was a year ago, I think I was on private then. Um, I would do the same again now just because, you know, they don't need to see me tweeting about chamomile tea or some bullshit at like you know midnight. <laughs> um, so um, yeah, I'd, I'd probably lock down then. But yeah, no, I'm I'm I think ninety percent of the people I follow and other PhD, you know, other people in academia, and they're all the same. Like they're just kind of wear their hearts on their sleeves and scream into the void along with me. So um, that's is the nice. is the screaming into the void 
but it's when academics with full-time jobs complain mm. that that <laughs> George's face like yeah it really <laughs> gets my goat because they're like it is annoying because it's like you're like you say we're like applying for so many fellowships and just getting rejected from loads and then like people being like, oh, it's so hard, this five-year fellowship on a great funded labor Hume project. It's like, <laughs> shut up, just shut up. <laughs> Honestly, you will never see me complain, ever. Yeah, that's that's one thing that actually, as much as I have found quite a lot of solace in Twitter, a huge turnoff of like so-called academic Twitter is the sheer amount of moaning. Like, and and it is at all levels. And, you know, like PhD students, pretty justified to moan, especially in the last couple of years. Uh, undergrads and, you know, master students, absolutely justified to moan. They've had a really rough few years. But the further up you go, just the more of a turn off someone's complaining is. And once it's, yeah, someone with a, a tenured position or uh, someone who's, you know, you know is making more money than you're going to make in the next four years or whatever, and they're complaining about, uh, like, having to do admin and teach alongside their research and stuff. And it's like, well, if you don't want to do it, maybe step aside. Like, let's let someone else have a go. I'll do it, and I'll do it with a smile on my face every single thing <laughs> day. <laughs> it is tough, it is tough, because, yeah, I mean, I think... I think being in academia anyway, you have to learn to have a really, really thick skin because of just the constant rejection, the constant yeah. filling out of applications that will just get, you know, a blanket email back. Um, and then sharing a space with others like Twitter where, you know, rightly, I think most of the time people want to celebrate their small victories and successes and things. And I'm guilty of that. You know, if I have an article published, I'm going to share it on Twitter and stuff. But I guess it's about measuring that and just, you know, if, yeah, I guess there's a, there's a balance to be struck, but I mean, I'm I'm fully with you when I see someone, yeah, earning more money than I'll ever earn in my entire life, um, just complaining about some kind of mundane administrative thing. I'm a bit like tearing my tearing my hair out, but yeah, that's Twitter, I guess. It's a double-edged sword. Oh, it very much is. It very much is. So something that we ask all of our guests to do on uh, Not Safe for Publication is share a, a funny anecdote or something funny from their research. Okay, um, so I, we had talked about this briefly, Georgia, before we went on air. So I have prepared. It's not funny in any stretch. You know, don't don't accept live at the Apollo here. This is very, very specific as well. But um, I'm really good at fake laughing, so I'll just make it. Sense. Excellent. You're going you're gonna to need, need plenty of that where this is headed. Um, so basically, one of the texts I look at is Spoon River Anthology by Edgar Lee Masters and it's essentially a poetry collection come um, collection of epitaphs basically of all these people that have died in the small town and they're just moaning from beyond the grave um, about various things about people having sex on their graves and people like just it's really kind of a really surreal strange strange text but what's the best thing about it for me is the names he's given these characters. Um, and I've picked just five names here that are particularly novel from the text, which I always always get a slight laugh out of. So first one is Indignation Jones. Indignation is in quote marks. Daniel McCumber, that's M apostrophe Cumber. <laughs> Roscoe Perkopile, Hildrup Tubbs, and Washington McNeely. Um, and I mean, there's about 200 names in the whole collection, and they're all as strange as that, to be honest. So when I'm kind of sick to death of reading about small towns, it's nice to flick through there and see someone called Daniel McCumber moaning about teenagers having sex on his grave. Um, so yeah, that's a light moment in my research, I guess. 
Well, Will, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been brilliant to have you on the show. Is there anything that you want our listeners to know about or anything you want to plug? Uh, firstly, thank you both so much for having me on. It's really, really lovely to be asked. Um, and just, yeah, it's been really nice to chat to you both. In terms of plugging, not really. I mean, I don't know what, what normally happens here in terms of like how selfish are people with plugging. I mean, I'm not going to plug the Fraser podcast. but I mean... You can plug your Fraser podcast. Well, you plugged it already now. You said it. Yeah. So Check out, out Will's podcast. It's called We're Listening. <laughs> Delete this. The overlap on the Venn diagram of people listening to this and people who want a Fraser podcast is going to be like this. Um, so I guess, okay, one thing I will plug is that we run a podcast on USSO, um, which is US Studies Online. If you're interested in coming on and chatting about your research in a similar way that I've done on this, um, email us at USSO at BASS, which is B-A-A-S. .ac.uk. I can definitely recommend being a guest on the USSO cast. I did it recently. Uh, you were and... an excellent guest. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, if you are working in the field of American studies, you should definitely do it. Uh, well, then all that is left to say is thank you for being our guest. Jess, thank you for co-hosting. And don't tell your supervisor what you heard here today. What happens on the podcast stays on the podcast. <laughs> Not Safe for Publication is a podcast by and for the research students of the Faculty of Humanities at the University of Manchester. If you want to get in touch with us, you can reach us on Twitter at NSFPPodcast or you can email us at NSFPPodcast at gmail.com. Our intro and outro music is Hat the Jazz by Twin Musicom. <laughs>